We're in that booklet that you have in front of you, that one that's called Foundations. If you don't have a copy, there are notes right at the back by the door. Feel free to get up and go grab those notes so you can follow along. We've been going through this at a snail's pace, but going through the material and training on discipleship with the goal of training you so you can be able to give an answer wisely to other people who would talk to you. So this is the booklet we're dealing with. And again, I remind you, it's in two different translations. You're welcome to pick up either one and follow along. Where we're at this evening is in chapter 8. We're jumping into the middle of the chapter, about page 130. And in this section, we're talking about temptations and how to deal with them. I want to tell you a story that I told you probably about three years ago, and some of you will remember, but it's a gentleman who was the duke of a region in Belgium that his younger brother revolted against him. And so the older brother, Reynold, was revolted against by his younger brother, Edward. And Edward put his older brother in a locked area and kept him there for a period of years as he overthrew in that power of that entire region. When people would come and say, how could you do this to your brother? He says, listen, I've told my brother he can come out anytime he wants and resume authority and resume his throne. All he has to do is leave the room that I put him in. You see, what he did is he built a room and put the door in last. The door was a normal-sized door, but the older brother, Reynold, was not a normal-sized guy. He was an obese fella, and he couldn't fit through a normal-sized door. And so his younger brother, Edward, what he said is, if you lose enough weight and can diet your way out of there, you can resume the authority over the country. But what Edward did is every day he sent up all kinds of delicacies, all kinds of dainties, and his brother ate himself into 10 years of imprisonment. And stayed there for that entire period of time because he couldn't control his appetites. Only was he able to get out when Edward passed away. They broke the door open, the wider, so he could get out. And he himself was broken health and died within a year. But talk about somebody who gave up so much because he couldn't control his appetites. Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about dealing with temptations. That we resist them, that we get a control over them. Now, we're in the section, halfway through what's the section in the book, in in the lessons, that's talking about recognizing where temptations come from. In order to deal with them, we have to recognize why are they here, what it's coming from. And we made this observation that temptations come from three different sources. One is your own desires, your own flesh, just like Reynolds' story that we just told you. The other is the world around us, and then there's the devil. We were in the middle section talking about the devil last time, how the devil is a powerful character, a real character. And we pointed out several passages of Scripture that are up on the wall, and they're not in your notes entirely, but there they are giving you that he is called an authority, a power, a prince, a ruler of different things that are going on in this world at this point. And so this powerful creature that is that is with great power created in great beauty when he sinned against God and revolted against God he all of a sudden became extremely dangerous all of a sudden we have new terms for him instead of the son of the morning all of a sudden he is called Lucifer the slanderer he's called deceiver he is called destroyer he is called our enemy the dragon the tempter and all of those terms give the indication that this once in the past beautiful creation of God who revolted against God. When he revolted, he became a horrible, horrible individual. An individual who has been against God and is against God's followers ever since. He's a danger to us. He detests us. He wants to destroy us. Jesus Christ
Christ in describing Satan described him in John chapter 8 as a murderer from the very beginning, a liar from the very beginning of man's creation, that he is dangerous, that what he presents is not truthful. And we made the observation, he'll present that adultery is something that's tantalizing, something that's really fun and there is excitement to it, but it's extremely dangerous and deadly and harmful. He can present the alcohol or the drugs as something that's very, very fun and again, exciting, but the real effects are very dangerous and damaging to the body, to families, to homes, to personal lives. And so he and his lying, he offers things that are good at first sight, but they're very dangerous. Why does he do that? He wants to destroy us. He's a murderer. He's deceitful. And so we read in scriptures last week where we wrapped up, we said there's a Bible verse that talks about Satan being so wicked and his followers that they are trying to deceive the world and will continue to do so more and more as we see the end days approaching. But then God makes the comment, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who's within us. That he is more powerful than this most powerful of all creation. God is more powerful. That God who lives within us, he can help us to overcome even Satan's temptations and his, his uh, tricks against us. And that we who are born again, who have asked Christ to be our Savior, who have done it, whether we be at a camp or a church service, where we have done it at homes, at our parents' knees, do it in the privacy of our bedroom, when we repent of our sin and ask Christ to forgive us, the Holy Spirit moves in. And greater is he that is in us. And as a result of the Holy Spirit who is within us, we can overcome and resist any temptation. And we can overcome those sins, those addictions that easily beset us. And so we've been talking about that. Let's pick up then with some new material, a little bit further in your notes. That the Bible makes this comment. It says, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, we are to be aware of his devices. How does Satan work? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning of creation. It's in that, that following creation week where God said all that he had created, it was good. Sometime shortly thereafter, then all of a sudden there's the first temptation. It's in scriptures called the fall. It's in Genesis chapter 3, and we read the account starting with verse 1, and it gives us some information. Now, if you're conducting this Bible study with a friend, a family member, you want to do the same type of process, so let's read the passage. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and the wife, what's your Bible say? 
They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God in amongst the trees in the garden. And then God says, okay, where are you basically, Adam? And so our observation that we're on page 131, it's talking, giving you this passage. What word is used to describe Satan in what we just read? He's more subtle than any other beast. So that subtle has the idea he's crafty, he's clever. What, made, what was his mode of attack in this text? Let's dissect it. This is very important to understand. He uses this method very successfully with Adam and Eve and continues to use it. If it works, keep on using it. What he did, okay, the timing is very important. He waited until Eve was all alone, or at least apart from the one that knew God even better, that's her husband Adam, the person to whom she was accountable. So he catches us oftentimes when we're alone, when we're away from those people that are helping to keep us accountable. He was not straightforward. He was very deceitful. You know, in this whole thing, you shall not surely die. He denies God. He, he twists what God has said. Your eyes shall be open. That's true. Their eyes were open, but not in the way that he said it. Okay? Their eyes were open to guilt and to the damage. And so he's extremely sly. He's persistent. He starts asking questions, and she's hesitant, but he's very persistent, very persistent, keeping on, wearing her down. He's persuasive in his arguments that as she's listening to him, and as what we just read, it seems logical. It seems that this makes sense. Maybe God is holding back something from us. Maybe God, God isn't treating us as fairly as what he should, because if we follow, if we eat of the fruit, then we will become wiser. And so he's, he's sly, he's crafty. And as we look at the passage, okay, a little bit further later on, we're going to see that he has a process of doubt, denial, distortion of the word of God. But for right now, let's jump all the way to Matthew chapter 4. Let's go to the New Testament, the first book in that, book, in that section of the Bible. And we're talking about Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4. That Jesus Christ at this time is being tempted. He has been living for his father and now he's beginning his ministry at age 30. He goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. And then when he's in this wilderness, then, verse 1, was Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we read that when he had fasted and prayed for 40 nights, he was afterwards hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made to bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil takes him up to to a holy city, that is Jerusalem's up to a lofty point, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, if you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written. Isn't it interesting? Satan knows Scripture. It is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus responds, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And again, the devil takes him up into an exceeding high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said, all these things will I give you. Remind you, he is the prince of the world. He does control a lot of what happens. If you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, Jesus, and behold, the angels came and ministered. So we look at it, and we can learn several things about this. Again, the timing. When Satan tempted Jesus, what was going on at that moment that made Jesus able to be tempted? 
Okay, what do you have that's happening with the timing of it? Okay, okay, he's vulnerable. He tempts him in the area where he's physically weak. Okay? Anything else? Same thing as Eve. What crowd is Jesus with at this moment? Okay, he's vulnerable. He's all alone. So you have those ideas. When he is attacked, Jesus is weak. He's weary physically. And Satan attacks that very area of the food. He attacks him in the direct spot that there's changed the rock into the bread. He attacks when Christ is alone. He's apart. He attacks when Jesus Christ has already had a spiritual high. Just before that, Jesus has been baptized. Jesus has publicly been declared, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Just before that, John and Peter, they spent time with Jesus, and Jesus taught them for a couple days. Then he's led into the wilderness, and here you have it, that after the period of, of Jesus being baptized, after he's had some conversations with potential followers, it's a spiritual high point where God even said at the baptism, This is my beloved Son in whom I am. Okay, after that moment, then Jesus is alone. That's when Satan attacks. By the way, it still happens today. That after we're at mountaintops, usually there's a valley. Satan will try to tempt us. Tempt us when we're alone, when we're by ourselves. And then what happens in all of this, the essence of the temptations, if we have to summarize them all, what Satan's trying to get all of us to do is basically fall down and worship him. To follow him, to let him be the God of our life, to call the shots, to say what we should do. And so when we look at that, we say, okay, very similar, this happens. And if Satan tried these processes, these temptations on the Son of God, then he's probably going to try it on the rest of us. And so even though Jesus resisted, there's often times like Adam and Eve and so many times in our lives, we don't resist the same way. And so we should be aware of the devices. We should be aware that, that because of Christ's resistance and then because of Christ's sacrifice, the Bible repeatedly says that Jesus Christ has defeated Satan already, even though Satan's still in operation mode. Jesus Christ has already set what's going to happen in the future. Satan will be destroyed. And in the time that Christ went to the cross and afterwards, Satan rendered, I'm sorry, Jesus rendered Satan's devices powerless to those who want to resist, to those who refuse. We read the Son of God appeared for this person to render powerless the works of the devil. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now, that day or two before he was crucified, now is judgment come and he's going to be cast out. He himself likewise shared, this is Jesus sharing in human flesh, so that through death he might render him powerless, is the word destroy, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and at least those who, through the fear of death, were under bondage. Folk, that's us. We don't have to live by Satan controlling us because of Christ defeating him, rendering him powerless. The only reason he gets victory is we listen to him. We say yes to him. Having disarmed, we talked about this in the book of Colossians in our morning study, how that he has rendered powerless the principalities and powers and made them a spectacle, that is, marching them as defeated objects before the realms of heaven. And so he's talking about we can be victorious if we're aware what Christ has done and that the devices that Satan uses, they're really age-old weapons that don't need to work anymore. They've been rendered powerless unless we say, I'll listen to you. And so we have the flesh, the devil, and then there's the one other area that we need to talk about. The temptations come from the world. Do anybody remember Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2? 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, okay, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then he gives the command. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the Spirit. Okay? In this, according to this passage, okay, what is the world trying to do to us? Be not conformed. Be not conformed. Okay, the word literally means to be molded into some type of a mold. It's to be pressed into some type of a cast, whether it be a metal or whether it be some, some iron or some wax item. They would have the molds and everything would be pressed to come out that way. And so he says, that's what we're, what's happened to us. And we're supposed to say, stop. I'm not going to let this happen anymore. I'm not going to let the world around me change me, mold me that I react the way that I do. Everybody around me cusses. Therefore, I guess it's, I, I need to cuss. That's not true. You're being molded by the world around you. People around me get all mad. They get all upset. I guess that means I should be mad and upset. No, you're being molded by an outside source. Sometimes people will say, well, everybody I work with, when they have marriage problems, they divorce. They, they don't work at their marriages. No, you're being conformed, pressed into a mold that isn't necessarily a mold by the Spirit of God. And so it's very important that we say, okay, stop to this world's influence upon us, and let's go back and say, what does God want me to do? And so when we talk about that, the thought that comes to my mind is something you gave your kids, your grandkids, you give them Play-Doh. And they have all kinds of molds, even the Play-Doh factory. And you push the Play-Doh in, you press it, and it'll all come out that one way of whatever that shape is. That's what often happens to people. Does education ever mold people into a philosophy that is wrong? Okay? Do, do employers try to mold their employees to accept different ideas and philosophies? Yeah. We see that happening a lot in our society. Do commercials ever try to mold you into thinking a certain way? Yeah, it's happening all around us. And he says, this shouldn't be the case. And what do you have? Your book asks this. What do you have to do to be conformed or molded by the world in, in some particular way? What do you have to do? Nothing. You have to do absolutely nothing. It's happening to us. We have to be careful. We have to resist it or we'll just follow along with the mold. And sometimes we get caught up in that flood of thinking that is not good. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I got to stop here. I just got caught up with the crowd. And so we know that that influence is very, very powerful. There's a passage that, if you're not familiar, you need to open up to. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and he talks about the world. Most of you probably have this memorized. If not, it is well worth memorizing. But if not, take your Bibles, open it up, and let's mark this passage because it is an incredibly important passage that's talking to believers, talking to believers of all ages. Earlier in the verse, he talks about mature man, talks about fathers. He talks about younger brothers and sisters and babes in the Lord. And we read in chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on to describe what the world is like. And we're not talking planet earth. We're not talking the ground in your yard. We're talking world cosmos. The whole idea of this, what, what's around us. And he's telling Christians, okay, stop loving what we call is this arrangement of society. The thinking of society. The goals of society. The world says you should be worried about number one. Who's number one? Yourself. Okay. The world says that you better 
beat that person before they beat you at work and money-wise, and that you, you need to be mostly concerned about your rights, your privileges, yourself, your getting ahead. That's a very common philosophy that we run into. And he says, wait a, wait a minute, let's, let's be careful. Let's be careful about loving the world and its philosophy. And again, we're talking cosmos. That's the word he uses here about the arrangement. The arrangement of ideas, philosophies, goals, lack of standards. Okay? We're not talking again about, okay, we're, you know, the earth, the, you know, the property. We're, we're, we're talking about ideas here. We're talking about possessions that come with the idea that the most important thing in this world is what you possess. You physically. Listen, the most important thing you possess is a spiritual item. It is called your soul. Because it is going to survive into eternity. And what you do with your soul is more important than what you do with your bank account. And so he talks about that idea, be careful, that you have a biblical philosophy that says, my soul is so important, what happens to it for eternity, and more than anything else, the goal that I was created for was to bring glory to God. Okay, that's why I am created. There's a system, though, in this world that since Satan is the god of this world, he has this system. And so we're told, don't love the world nor the things of the world. Now we get into the possessions. We get into the popularity. We get into the prestige of the world. Is there anything wrong with having a car? No, no. Is there anything wrong with having a house? No, but the problem is if the house has you, if the, if the car owns you, if, if all of a sudden that is, uh, is, is dictating to you rather than it. We should have possessions and use our possessions for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong. Is it wrong for a Christian to be rich? No, no. But we don't want the riches to control us. And we have to remember that the love of money is the root of all evil. So we use our monies, and if God gives some of us a lot more than he gives others, that's okay, as long as we honor the Lord with our funds. And so we have to keep that all balanced and understand, okay, it's okay to have possessions, it's okay to use them, but don't get caught up into this idea that it's all about me, all about popularity, all about getting, getting, getting in this life, because how much of the things in this life do you take with you? Okay, none. You can take souls with you, friends with you, those that you've influenced for Christ, but you're not going to take, you know, that old adage, you don't see a hearse going down the road with, with a U-Haul attached to it. People don't take it with them. And, but the world says, worry, worry, worry about getting, getting, getting. But the Bible says that if we are conformed by this world, if a Christian is being conformed, being molded, what does that indicate? The love of God is not in us. Okay? Okay, what does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't love us? No, God loves the world, okay? So it's not God's love towards us isn't in us. It means what? Our love towards God isn't what it should be. That if we're loving the world, we don't love the Lord. A love for the God isn't present the way it should be. In fact, it may not even be there. Because that individual who is within the church community, he could be saying, I'm a Christian, and really not be born again. Not be born again. 
And so he's warning the believers to check their heart, to check their soul. And I remind you the context of John. John's epistle, 40 times he says, you know, you know, you know you have eternal life concept. The book is written to find out, are you who are sitting in church? You have to check yourself to see, am I really, truly born again? And some of the test is, what do you love? One of those important, there's other tests in that book. Who do you like to be around? How do you feel when you sin? All those different types of concepts are in the book. Do you want to, do you have a desire to obey God? One of the tests that if you have a love for God, if you're truly born again, is are you allowing the world to conform you? Or are you being impacted by God's word more than, than that? So one who is the idea preferring Satan's ways over God's ways. And so he points out in this passage, he describes what the world is all about. And this is critical as you're doing the Bible study. He, and he says, love not the world, neither things of the world. But then in verse 16, he describes the world for all that is in the world. And he describes it in three different phrases. He describes that everything in this world can be summarized with this idea. The lust of the... Okay, he gives us the three different thoughts. That is, the lust of the flesh is that idea that do whatever your inner nature wants to do. Do whatever feels good. If it feels good, it must be, okay, it must be good, must be right. Okay, that's the lust of the flesh. Does the world promote this? Okay, as a whole it does. As a whole it says, okay, if it feels good, it's okay. Others may say it's wrong, but it's not wrong as long as it feels good to you. That's the lust of the flesh. Okay. Then he says, what else? What other influences are there? The what? Okay. Then you have the lust of the eyes. That which is desired, which is appealing to us. And in our culture, pleasures, possessions, popularity, that's very appealing to us. But, and the world presents that to us all the time. You, you, you want to see it presented in its, in its clarity the best way? Watch the commercials. They appeal to this lust of the eyes. Do they not? Okay. And I'm not saying that everything that's sold by commercials is evil. Okay. We know that that's not the case. But they make it look so, you know, really good and appealing and appetizing. And if you buy this car, you'll never have a problem in your life again. Okay. If you eat our chocolate, you will forever have the greatest physical stamina. If you, it's presented that way. It's marketed that way. Then there's what other one? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Okay, the pride of life is your third one. The feeling that, pride of life, that you're your own boss. You're your own boss. That is, you know, you, you decide. You do what you want to do. Okay, and again, um, I made allusion a few moments ago about being caught up with our rights, and I'm glad that we have many rights in our country. That, that's not what we're referring to. But there is this idea that I can do whatever I want. Okay, I'm my own authority. And again, we get those silly stories we read about and we know about peoples that said, I am never, I'm going to get out of my parents' home and I'm going to be on my own and I'm going to become my own boss so I join the military. And you go, duh. Okay. And that happens with people. Why did they do, make that decision? It was moved by pride of life. Pride of life that says, I, I, I want to do this. The problem that we talked about this morning when we talked about children obeying and respecting their parents, children of all ages, 
Why was, why was, and I use myself as an illustration, what motivated me to be such a rebellious teenager towards my parents? That I said, and I shared with you, I thought my parents were ignorant. I thought that they were stupid. I thought that they were silly in what they did. And I, as a 14-year-old, I knew better. Where did that come from? Okay, what, what part of my sin nature? My pride. My pride. And so we, that's a battle that we struggle with. And the world, the world would enhance this. The world would say, it's okay to be proud. It's okay to be following the lust of your eyes, the lust of the flesh. But the Word of God says we ought to be careful. Now let's go back. Okay, let's just remind ourselves. We already read this. Okay, that when in Genesis, it said that when Eve saw the things. Here, watch the progression of this. She, she saw that the fruit was good. That appealed to the lust of the flesh. It says the lust of the eyes. Again, that it was good to eat. It would be pleasant. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Genesis 3 reads. And it says that she desired that it to make her wise. There it is. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan used that. That was the bait he used. That was the trick he used at the very beginning. And he used it with Christ just as well. In fact, when you look at Matthew chapter 4, here we go. The lust of the flesh, command the stones to be made into bread to feed your flesh. The one temptation, look at all these kingdoms. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. The lust of the eyes. There you would have everything, a power over everything. The pride of life, throw yourself off the pinnacle. And prove that God cares for you. That he'll send your angels so you don't crash down. And Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't presume upon him. And so that same idea was used with Eve, was used with Christ. And guess what? It's going to be used with us. We need, to, need not to be ignorant. We're to be aware of his devices. That this is the way that he often works. Now in James chapter 1, well, as we wrap up this section, it reads this. Then when lust, your inner desires, have conceived, they bring forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. Now on page 132, you ask the question, what are the consequences to yielding to the flesh? Okay, your lust conceived. You're giving in to what that desire. What your, your results are, conceived lust, and I think there's blanks you fill in. Conceived lust brings forth sin, which brings forth death. Separation from God. Okay, separation for all eternity if you don't get born again. If you are a born-again Christian, it breaks your fellowship with him. So this is very serious, this concept. And again, we remind ourselves the lust comes from within our own uh, spirit that's being promoted by the temptation of Satan or the world around us. What are the consequences of yielding to Satan? Remember 1 Peter chapter 5? Satan is a roaring lion going about seeking after or for those whom he may devour. Okay. Consequences of yielding to Satan? For according to that text, he swallows us up. He destroys us. He devours us. Uh, Pastor Art made the observation that it, the devoured is the same word in 1 Peter 5 as in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about when the Egyptians followed the Israelites into the Red Sea and all of a sudden the Red Sea collapsed upon them and it destroyed all of Pharaoh's army. Same word for devour or destroy. And so we need to observe again that all these temptations, they aren't simple and minor. They're very serious. And, and you know this is true. 
You know, I, I could tell you silly stories about how it happened in my own life. You've got them as well. That when you told a lie, it seems so innocent. But to protect the lie, what did you probably have to do? Lie again, and then what? Lie again, and then it got more confounded, more complicated, and more difficult. And it consumes. It devours. And you know you should come clean. You know you should confess, but it just, whew, it just takes over. And so we have to be very, very, very careful. Now, in James 4, as we wind down this section, it says to the believers, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world, give me another word for enmity. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. What's enmity with God mean? Okay, you're separated from? Against an enemy. It's the concept of being coming an enemy. Okay. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's basically that same repetition. You have chosen a side against God. And so here's the observation to the believers that James is writing to. You are considered, if you choose to follow the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, you are, cho- you are considered a spiritual adulterer or adulteress. If you're born again, you've become committed to Jesus Christ. Let's go back to what we said at the very beginning. At the very beginning, that idea of getting baptized says that once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, your baptism shows not only what Jesus has done for you, but also shows that what you're going to, you're going to do for Christ. Exactly. That you have died to the old life, and you are going to walk in the newness of life. Okay, and follow Christ. And all of a sudden, you go back to the old things, you follow the temptations, and he says, you've just committed a form of spiritual adultery by giving in to those old desires again. And and, and if you and I would use this term with one another and say, you're a spiritual adulterer, those are harsh terms. Those are terms that we would, what are you saying? That's what God is saying to the believers. Those who give in, that give up and follow what the world is offering, that all of a sudden you're taking a side against me. You're choosing to go on the other side. You're becoming my enemy, my, my opponent. When, when uh, I was raising our kids, we played a lot of games in the backyard. The idea was to play and spend time with the kids. And there was something that happened almost all the time. The younger boy always, when we played games, always wanted to be on... You know, Tony was older, me, I was older, and we'd say, whose side do you want to be on? Guess whose side he always chose? Tony or mine? Tony's an athlete. Does that answer it right away? Okay. So he always wanted to be on Tony's side, because then that way they could... Yeah, beat dad. Yes, we're going to beat dad in baseball and football and whatever. Okay? And, you know, guys, I'll play in horseshoes. It's an old man's game. I'll do horseshoes. They'd still beat me. Okay? But it got frustrating because Tony said, I don't want him on my team. Okay? Because he doesn't listen to me. And it was like, yeah, go on that team. You never listen. Go over there. The point is that he always chose to be on this one person's team, and it frustrated Whose team do you choose to be on? God is saying that we as believers, when we face a temptation, we have a choice to say, whose team will I be on? Obviously, whose team should we choose to be on? God's. If we don't, we become an enemy of his. So here's the irony of it. 
For a believer to love the world, to say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go after the things of this world. I'm going to follow the addictions, the desires, the temptations of the world. I, I'm going to follow immorality, illicit things. I'm going to allow the, I'm going to allow the influences of, of drugs or alcohol to control my life. I'm not going to have a moral purity. I, I'm not going to be honest. I'm not going to be upright. I'm, I'm not going to work. I'm going to steal. Um, I'm going to be operating by anger rather than forgiveness. I'm going to become a bitter person. All those different things. What's ironic about this, if you love or you prefer the world, here's where you find yourself. At odds with God who saved you. You've chosen the other side. Okay, You're an adulterer. You have chosen a world that in reality is going to turn on you. The world is not going to remain your friend. Should we give you the classic example from the stories of Jesus Christ? The young man who had money and rebelled against his father and said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to live my own life because I don't want you to boss me around anymore. He took his inheritance from his dad before it was time and he ends up partying and carrying on and he had lots of friends until till the money ran out. And then what happened to his friends? They were gone as well. And where does he find himself? Literally in the pigsty, and what friend is helping him? None. None. Isn't this typical of the world? The world says, come and join us, come and join us. And as soon as they get the everything out of you, they're done with you. They kick you when you're down and out. What institution is in this world that is supposed to be and ought to be and often is supportive of individuals who fall flat on their face? Church church. The body of Christ, which helps to rebuild, which helps to be accepting, which throughout the New Testament says, forgive those who repent, lest Satan gets an advantage over them. And so here we have that, that if you and I choose to give in to temptation, desires, we're going to end up against God. We're going to end up with people or situations that they're going to turn against us anyway. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. That's what he's saying in the temptation. So here's where it brings us to. How do I resist? What do I do to say no? Well, number one, you have to say no. But what he does is here, and follow the paragraph. Do you get the sense that your tempters are extremely strong and dangerous? Yes, they are. However, our God is not only strong, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Since God has commanded you to be holy and resist temptation, he's also provided a way. And then he asks this, makes a comment, as a Christian, this is really, you should underline it, it's in your book. As a Christian, you no longer have to sin. Think that through. You don't have to sin. We do, but we don't have to. We do in those weak moments, the moment given. 1 Corinthians, let's wrap up with just this one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Next Sunday we'll just finish this out and do communion. It'll be so appropriate as we wrap up and do communion Sunday evening. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, a phenomenal verse, a verse that is in the context talking about the Israelites, how they gave into grumbling, they gave into adultery, they gave into rebellion against God. And after he tells those stories in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says, well, let's back up to verse 12. Therefore, okay, wherefore, let him that thinks he stand, do you remember this? 
take heed lest he... Okay, there's, there's the idea of pride. Then he makes this comment. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, everybody runs into temptation. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Okay, let's just wrap up here. God is faithful. That's critical. He's writing to believers. God is faithful. God is faithful. God knows he's given you the ability not to sin, but he also knows us. He knows that we probably will. And, but God is faithful that with the temptation, okay, what has he promised us? Two things in this verse. So important when it comes to temptation. Okay, no temptation will come to you that you can't, you can't handle. You can't handle. No temptation. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. And that could include trials to discourage you, like Satan gave to Job. Just to discourage you, to defeat you. Nothing that comes in your life is above your ability to handle it. You feel that way. You think that way. But God says, I know you better than you do. I know you can handle this. I know you can say no to this. I know you can continue to follow me no matter what is going on in your life. I know you. This is the promise. I promise you, I will never let you be tempted above that you are able to handle. That's a loving God. What's the second promise? With the temptation, with the difficulty, with the challenge, with the temptation, I will provide a way out of it. A way that you can be successful. That you can resist it. Not necessarily a relief or the absence of any or all temptations. But the power and assistance to be able to resist the temptation. What is, what are the way of escape? That's what this next section is. That God gives you several ways of escape to deal with temptation. And they are very simple. They're going to be listed. We're going to talk about them. It's the spirit. It's the scripture. It's prayer. It's fear. It's fleeing. Okay? It's accountability. You apply these, you have victory in your lives. You will be able to do what Jesus said to that woman that was taken in adultery. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do we do that? This is where we'll pick up next week.